1: Welcome to episode 399, where I spoke with Annette Lloyd, author of Harold Lloyd, Magic in a Pair of Horn-Rimmed Glasses. I was not destined to be a writer, she told me. She discovered the work of silent film star Harold Lloyd at age 17 and has since written about her hero in multiple books, including Harold Lloyd, Magic in a Pair of Horn-Rimmed Glasses. The description reads, From birth to death, Harold grew and evolved because of the things that were happening around him such as the coin toss that got him to California, meeting a fellow extra universal named Hal Roach, creating his revolutionary glasses character, a death defying bomb accident, and much more, including winning his Oscar. In this interview, Annette talks about working with James Robert Parrish, writing about subjects that consume you, how false truths become published facts, and how to correct this, and how being a historian is like being an archeologist.
0: I was not destined to be a writer. I, I've, I've always enjoyed writing. I've always enjoyed it. The the thing that I always tell people, I tell people anybody can write a book. It the big thing, the big issue is having an interest, a fascination that you have to learn more about. And that's pretty much what started me. Uh back In 1979 was when I discovered Harold Lloyd for the first time. I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school. It was not normal on Staten Island for a kid to be fascinated with silent film. I kept that fascination all along, through college, graduate school, all of it. Fast forward, To 1992, I belonged to a movie and entertainment book club. And they had a newsletter. And in the back of the newsletter, they had classifieds. I read one month of a publisher that was looking for first-time authors. And I thought, oh, boy, that would be fun. First-time authors, I figured, you know, they're looking for people who have no experience. So I wrote to them. And I told them, I'd love to do a book on Harold Lloyd. He's my hero. He's my favorite. I'd love to study him. Have you done, have Have you heard of him or anything? And they immediately wrote back and said, give me a sample of your work. I did that. I met friend, J- James Robert Parrish, very, very famous author, who was my editor. and the day after Thanksgiving, I got a contract to write my first book. I I cried myself to sleep because I was so nervous because I had never really written anything professionally before. But I soon realized that the big key was having an interest in something that consumes you to such an extent that you have to learn as much as you can. And that particular book was a formula book, so every book was pretty much the same. It was an academic reference book, a biobibliography. I learned a lot of lessons from that. And I, for those who are listening, who are endeavoring to write, the biggest lesson that I learned, and I'm still learning it, is never, ever, ever trust blindly research that has come before you it many times perpetuated misfacts will just keep getting published over and over and over and over until it becomes fact and such was the case with Lloyd so many the filmography that was out there forever was completely wrong and I found these things out. Facts were wrong. Films were wrong. Appearances, quotes. I find this, these things out because of my curiosity, because of my my need to be complete and to find out everything. There, writing a book, being a film historian, is a lot like an archaeologist. There's a lot of dust. There's a lot of discovery. There's a lot of Determination and exhilaration. Uh, But I had to correct a lot of facts that were wrong in prior books on Lloyd. My books were not the first on Lloyd. Uh, I did correct a lot of misnomers and out and out inaccuracies uh, in books that came before me. So my journey was there wasn't anything that I was destined to be an author but now I'm currently working on my 10th book I took some time off to be a mom and now I'm back and but there's no there's no real formula to being an author except for interest and the ability to stick with something and Take all of your curiosities and figure out things. It's it's a glorious way to go. It's wonderful fun. <laughs>
1: was it back when you were 17, was it just like intangibles? Can you define what it was about Lloyd?
0: Back in 1979, and, and you got to understand the, the context of this. When I was 17, televisions had knobs. And customarily, there were there were no remote controls. There were two knobs. The VHF band went from channels two through 13. The UHF band started at 14 and went upwards. And I was looking for a specific show. I think it was a cooking show on a channel in the 50s. I accidentally changed the channel too far and found... What I later found out was the Time Life series of called Harold Lloyd's World of Comedy. I started watching because I had never seen. I had seen him. I had seen pictures of him in Our Gang, Little Rascals books. At the time, the first edition of Leonard Maltin and Dick Bann's book was on my bookshelf, and I had seen a picture of Harold Lloyd because. Without Harold Lloyd, there would have been no Hal Roach Studios, but that's a story for another time. I I knew that I had seen that guy before, but I had never seen him move. I had only seen stills. I started watching, and I don't know if it was something cathartic. I have no idea, but I couldn't stop watching. And I found out that he was on every Thursday night at 1030. So every every Thursday night at 10.30, I was there, even though I had school the next day. I had to watch him. I felt an immediate kinship to him, uh, not just because of glasses, not just because at that time I was brunette. I hadn't started going gray yet. I felt like I could relate to him. I felt like I understood him, I think because his character was so normal and not eccentric and quirky and weird like many other comics were. I could relate to him and I could understand his motivations. I found him funny. I found him handsome. And that was something that was very strange for comedy. At that point in comedy, the more unusual you look, the more grotesque you look, the more unlike regular folks you looked, the funnier you were perceived to be. But then all of a sudden, this guy is from that era, but he's handsome. Romance is believable. And I I saw myself in him. I saw myself in him. And... It, it, what's really strange is it stuck with me. It, it was at, that, at the point that I got my first contract to write my first book, which was 1992, it was a very, very difficult time to be a fan of anybody. There was hardly any, v- there was no VHS, it was all beta. There was no DVD. There was no YouTube. There was no streaming no email no nothing everything was snail mail going to libraries and maybe if you could find a repertory house there were none on staten island so it was very hard to um sustain being a fan but i did even when the show went off the air I still had my books, the books that I could find on him, his autobiography and a few other books. And I devoured them. And I I just I knew when I had the opportunity to write a book. I had to write it on him. I had to. And I was so elated once I found out that. He was available as a as a subject and you know it, it it it's a strange thing i think about why harold why him and i think it sounds silly it sounds silly but i think he chose me because i have never wavered from my quest to make sure that he's better known i've never stopped i you know i've had a website on in, in, you know, in internet land since 1995. Harold has been active since 1995. I've never stopped. I've never stopped promoting him, talking about him now with Facebook, with email. I'm constantly promoting either a film showing or yesterday, you know, March 8th was the 50, 50, second 52nd anniversary of his death Hmm. april 1st is going to be the 100th anniversary of safety last the great film in which he hung from the hands of a clock and i'll never stop promoting him never
1: and just an elephant in the room for those that might see your name you're not actually related it's your it's your husband's name but there's no actual relation there just so everyone's aware um to, to go to go back a little bit so a lot of these, I think of Chaplin, he got his start in vaudeville, but that wasn't the case with Lloyd. Lloyd wanted to be in film, right? What was his early days like?
0: Well, interestingly, Harold, we're Buster Keaton, um, Charlie Chaplin, Stan Laurel, Red Carno. A lot of the greats got their start in English, well, music hall vaudeville comedy stages. They had experience in comedy. Harold Lloyd was a complete the complete opposite. He had he grew up in the Midwest. He was born in Birchard, Nebraska. He lived in Nebraska, various cities in Nebraska and Colorado throughout his childhood. And he wound up in San Diego. He followed a um, an actor who had a theater company. He called his name was John Lane Connor, and he founded something called the Connor School of Expression. And Harold, given the opportunity to get to San Diego, and that's one of the turning points in my book. Flip of a coin, got them to San Diego, and it was there that. He continued with the Connor School of Expression and eventually was given an opportunity to be in his first film. But unlike Chaplin, Keaton, Laurel, and many others, Harold preferred heavy roles. He preferred to be the villain. Mm -hmm. He preferred uh, dramatic roles. He used to say that they had more bite to them. He was not a comedian. He was not a comic. He was not funny. He preferred being dramatic. the The thing that made him a good com uh, a good comedian was that he was a good actor. And Hal Roach used to say that Harold Lloyd was the best actor to play the part of a comedian mm. of anybody that he had ever seen. And that's exactly accurate. Harold had, if, if you go through. All of his stage clippings, and I've I've seen them all. I've seen the scrapbooks. It's all dramatic films. It's all melodrama. Villains he played. Even he was in Macbeth. Very, very limited, possibly some comedy bits, mm. but nothing that said, oh, this kid's going to be a... Great comedian, not at all, not at all.
1: Was it just the the time, the film business itself that required physical comedy? Like what led him to stunts and some of those things?
0: He was always very athletic. as a child. He would climb buildings, climb churches, and, uh, you know, they, his friends and he would climb a building together, and by the time that they were halfway up one wall, he'd be going down the other wall. He was always very, very physically active. Mm -hmm. His films, especially the early films that he did with Hal Roach, he did a a character called Lonesome Luke, Mm -hmm. which was a prototype. Understand, everybody had to do some variation of Chaplin. Mm -hmm. So where the tramp had loose clothes, and just didn't look anything like anybody that we would even want to go near. Lonesome Luke wore too tight clothes, so his everything was too small on him. He had a two-dot mustache, triangular eyebrows. Very, very unusual. The action that was so prevalent, especially in the teens, and uh, the mid-teens in particular, was because of the standard of comedy at that time. Frantic, frenetic action was funny. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe because people don't act that way in real life. And I think it was an extension of what made people funny in those days. Very, very few comedians looked like you and me, Mm -hmm. or looked like their audiences. They looked unusual. They looked Grotesque or strange, Ben Turpin with the eyes, uh, Ford Sterling with the chin piece, John Bunny and Roscoe Arbuckle with their girth, Chaplin with the tramp outfit, Buster Keaton never smiled. It, it that was not like you and me, mm-hmm. Harold. Especially in the Lonesome Luke era and the early Glass character era, was very active, action was was paramount. Everything was just in motion. You didn't, it, it, the dramas were completely different. The dramas were very still, very, uh, unless you had a chase to the rescue. But comedies were all, I, I don't think there are any exceptions, very, very frantic. And that was because of the standard. Harold, through his glass character, in large measure, changed the standard of comedy and made it such that audiences could see themselves in a comedy and see the laughter that happens in real life, which is formidable. That's
1: do you, do you think it's just that like all of those actors, I think you said he did over 200 films, but he's really just known for three to five, maybe like it's because of the concrete imagery of those films, or what do you think about those
0: when When I mention who I you know write I've written four books on him, it's I, I have more I have more up here. <laughs> uh When I mention his name, invariably people say who? So I will then say, well, have you ever seen a picture of a man hanging from the hands of a clock guy with glasses and a straw hat and black suit? Oh yeah. I've seen that. That's Harold Lloyd. Oh, what film was that? And I'll, I'll explain. And, and this is the perfect year for that because on April 1st safety last celebrates its centennial Mm -hmm. 100 years ago, it was released. In addition In September, his film, Why Worry, also celebrates its centennial. And that's a great film. Great, great, great film. Anyway, um, it's very, as you noted, out of 201 films that I have really earmarked in his filmography, five of them, five, can be considered what are known as thrill comedies, Mm -hmm. where he I, I, you know, he, I guess he perfected something that had already, it was already being done Keystone in particular, the, the, the comedy in tense thrill situations, cars dangling off of cliffs. Mm -hmm. Keystone had done that a lot, but what Harold did, it, it pretty much threw out those five pictures that I mentioned He tied a story, a concrete motivation for what was happening to the thrill. Mm -hmm. What Harold did, he he knew that the action was very important, but he also knew that story was important. Mm -hmm. What he generally did was he would film the climax, the, the thrill the the climb up the building, the, you know, being, being on a ledge or on a girder that's dangling up. And he did, he would shoot those first, knowing that he had a great ending. Then they would go back. He and his team would go back and say, okay, now, why was that? Why was I doing that? Why did that happen? Why was that important to happen? And that's how he crafted these wonderful films. And it, it, it is amazing when you think about it, that out of such a diverse, long filmography, he had a career from 1913 to 1947, actively making films. He's best known for five pictures, one in particular, in, in which he incorporated thrills with comedy. A laugh, a scream, and a laugh. That was his formula. And it I think it's a testament to how effective the filming was, but also the marriage of the story, the character's motivation, and the action. All of that together was something new to um, people didn't people weren't used to that. it It wasn't. It wasn't done that way. It was generally, you know, run and or chase and you know car chase. and we didn't really understand why it was happening. But for Harold, it was story, yeah. character, and the the actual situation that he found himself in.
1: That's so interesting. I know today, Tom Cruise, The Mission Impossible, shoots the biggest stunt first and then the film. I always thought it was logistical, but it makes so much more sense, probably, to what leads to this big thing for the action. It's all for the fans, you know.
0: However, there was an exception to it. He had done this all the way through he back with the one Mm reelers he found that it was uh you know important to have a good close and then find out why it was happening Mm -hmm. he started his 1925 feature the freshman in that fashion Mm -hmm. he uh, the the basis of the film is that he's a a boy who goes away to college wants to be popular and decides to join the football team in order to be popular. He finds himself in the big game. Uh, the college was was characterized as a, a football stadium with a college attached. That's that's right. how big college college football was. Harold started. They all started filming, and pretty quickly into it, he said, "You know what, I." don't feel this. I don't understand why. I don't have the character's motivation. I can't get it out of my body. I don't understand why he's doing this. And so as a result, they they stopped and he said, you know what? I think with this film, I don't quite understand why, but I think with this film, I need to shoot it from the beginning I need to build this character and really understand why this character is in this game and why it means so much. And so that was an exception to his rule. He later went back and shot the end first. and, But for for the freshman, for some reason, that character really, really stood out to him maybe because he was nicknamed speedy and that was harold's name in real life or nickname i don't know quite why but that's what happened yeah
1: i think it's so interesting and we've kind of come back full circle to so we want to see our lead actors doing a lot of these things themselves and we want to follow the character and believe in them can you tell me about um he he had a a terrible injury from an explosion. Can you talk about that and then how it altered his career some?
0: Most assuredly. i I actually it's interesting in my in my latest book on him, I chronicle turning points in his life and career. And I really over the last years, I've really thought about which of the turning points that I identified was the most significant. And I think it was the events of August 24th, 1919. He was in a studio in Los Angeles. He had just signed a contract for longer films. Now, at this point, he was still making one real 10 minute long films, one a week. So he's making one film a week for three years. <laughs> and he was awarded a contract from his distributor, Pathé to do two real comedies that he could do once a month Mm -hmm. and really develop a bigger story and more action. And he was very excited about it. And one of the things that they were going to publicize it, so he had to go to photography studio and take new pictures. And so this day, Sunday, August 24th, 1919, found him in a studio with cell photographer in Los Angeles. And he brought with him a gag man who had a box of props that he uh, had taken from the studio. One of the poses that they had, you know, in mind Mm -hmm. was kind of a a clue to the character, devil may care, uh, lighting a cigarette from a bomb. You know, I don't care what life throws at me. I can do anything. So the prop man gives him a bomb that was in the prop box, Mm -hmm. lights the wick and the smoke that usually comes from these prop bombs. It was excessive smoke and it was coming across his face and it was marring the picture. So Harold said, no, you know, this one, this, this shot isn't going to do, I have to, and as he's putting the bomb down away from his head, he's putting it down, it blew. And standing there in his mark, he lost the thumb and the forefinger of his right hand. His He had facial injuries that he, he was temporarily blinded in his right eye, shrapnel in the left eye. And he was in the hospital for 16 days. And he it was it was devastating to him. He thought his career was over. Mm-hmm. He thought that it well, for a while he thought that maybe his life was over. He was essentially at heart a he, optimistic kind of guy, but he didn't see how he could survive the injury to his hand in particular, you know, he figured that the face would heal. He did have some pot marks on his chin. The eyesight came back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the the face maybe, but it was his hand. You know, Mm -hmm. essentially this is what his hand looked like right here. Half of his palm was blown away. And he figured, how, is it, how in the world am I going to be able to do this? And he was a right-handed man. So he had to learn to write and do things with his left hand. He did that through handball. Mm-hmm. But Hal Roach and Sam Goldwyn, who in his earlier pre-film career was a uh, glove salesman, mm-hmm. he, Roach and Goldwyn teamed up. And they found a company in New York called the American Rubber Limb Company. (laughs) And together, these gentlemen came up with a way for Harold to have a rubber simulation of the part of his hand that was blown off, masked within a thin leather glove that looked skin-toned, Rubber band garters then went up his arm. Rubber band garters. That's how it was, at at least in the beginning phase of this. And the accident happened in August. He was in the midst of filming a two-reeler called Haunted Spooks. And by January, he was back in the studio finishing the film. This is something he never imagined he could do. But what There's a combination of a lot of things at work with this accident beyond the fact that he had a newfound appreciation for his life. He had a heightened appreciation for his career. But I think more than anything, it said to him, I need to change my character even more towards normalcy. And I need to give the audiences better stories, more realistic situations. And I really do think, in large measure, the films that he made after the accident are, are for the most part, his best work. He has a a handful of one-reelers that were done pre-accident, which I think are just dynamite dynamite stuff. But for the most part, the work that he did after the accident was uniformly more excellent in terms of story, in terms of his acting. He changed his... He never really had a costume. He wore a suit, and he wore a tie, he wore a hat. Before the accident, he often would wear... A derby mm. a lot like uh a lot like the chaplain derby mm-hmm. after the accident. He changed his tie instead of the flowing, it was like a bow and then like that. Instead, he changed and went to the classic foreign hand, the kind of tie that guys wear to work every day now. Mm. He changed the hat to the straw hat that we customarily identify with him. He started acting a lot less frantic and a lot more contemplative on screen, thinking more, reacting more with his face instead of his body. Mm -hmm. The work that he did because of that, because of that accident, the work that he did took a turn for the better. And yeah, I often think to myself, my God, that the, the, he could have been a champion for the handicapped in such large measure but he chose and and this is this is actual he never ever ever spoke publicly about the loss of the fingers now he would talk about the accident all the time because he was always asked about it it was a significant thing that happened and it was in the papers and it was in the trades and everything but he never ever spoke about the loss of the fingers he never wanted the audiences to come to the cinema to see him out of pity or curiosity they he wanted them to come because uniformly the harold lloyd product was family friendly was funny was clean was not anything that anybody could say hey I see myself in that. I could do that. Mm-hmm. his His motivations, it, it, pretty much uniformly afterwards were the idea of believing in yourself at all costs. Believe in yourself, believe that you can do what you want to do and you can. Mm-hmm. And you know, so going back to what made me, who had never written anything, write a book about Harold that has led me to, you know, so far nine books and I'm working on my 10th because of that inspiration and that example that he gave in that you can do just about anything that you believe that you can do. You just have to try it and believe in yourself enough to make it happen.
1: Well, that was great. So, uh, for those listening that have maybe just seen YouTube clips or that or that famous image, uh, is there a movie you'd recommend to start with? And then, is there one of your specific books to start with as well?
0: It's interesting. You know, the the popular belief would be if you're new to Lloyd, watch Safety Last, 1923. It, it, yeah, it, it it's it's a fantastic film. It's marvelous. However. When I show people Lloyd for the first time, and I always do, when people come over to my house, they see Harold Lloyd. I show them Girl Shy. Girl Shy was 1924, one of two films he made in 1924. It was the first independent feature that he did after breaking away um, in 19, well, 1923. He amicably split from Hal Roach. They had been together since 1914, making films together. Actually, they met at Universal in 1913. So they had, they were always friends. They stayed friends. But Harold wanted more creative control over his product. Mm-hmm. And so he broke from, Lo- from Roach and formed Harold Lloyd Corporation. And Girl Shy was the first independent feature that he made that's all harold it's all his te- he and his team crafted an exceptional film it's to me it's his masterpiece a lot of people say the kid brother and i love the kid brother a lot of people say safety last and i love it the freshman i love it i there's not there isn't a a harold lloyd film that i cannot recommend. Maybe with the exception of his first sound feature. I'm not nuts about it. But for the most part, any film that you choose, you'll love. And I've never been to a screening of a Lloyd film or series of films where people haven't left wanting more. And now with the days of YouTube, most of his films are on YouTube. There's DVD sets all over the place in in all countries. It's he's he's available. He's accessible. He's there for the finding. And my job, very happily, is to promote him and make him a little bit more available, um, if a kid like me, a little kid from Staten Island could find him and love him and want to teach people about him. And this has been something that's been going on for me for 40 some odd years. I will never stop. I will never stop promoting him. Uh, Yeah. If you want a silent feature to watch, to learn about Harold Lloyd, watch Girl Shy. If you want a sound film, my idea of the perfect Lloyd sound film is his 1934 talkie called The Cat's Paw. Mm. Mm. There you go.
1: And as far as your books, are they best read in order, or is there a different order you might recommend first?
0: Um, I think I I of the four that I've done, okay, only three are publicly available. One of them was a private commission book that was written for the owner mm. of Harold Lloyd's estate. Oh. So it was a run of one. <laughs> I don't even have. <laughs> My the two books that I highly recommend one came out from McFarland in 2003 called the Harold Lloyd Encyclopedia mm-hmm. It's uh, 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 goes through every film it's academic in scope it's a just the facts ma'am of the people in his life his family, his films themes throughout his films themes throughout his life However, the most recent book that I wrote came out in 2009, uh, Harold Lloyd, uh, Magic in a Pair of horn Rim Glasses. The, the, I love this book because I thought of the idea for it because of my curiosity, continued curiosity about what were the turning points in Harold's life and career. He had done a, uh, an oral history in the 1950s at UCLA, and the series was called Turning Point. And I thought that was such a great concept, but it never really went anywhere. It, 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 they talked about some of the turning points in, your, in his life, but I decided with this book to isolate what I, me, construed to be the turning points in his life and career. I pepper throughout the book, I think I isolated like 34 things that happened to him, but I pepper it throughout with quotes from him, from his oral histories, from interviews, from written sources, his autobiography. You know, the sad thing is that he wrote his autobiography at the age of 35, He lived to be 77. So there's a whole chunk of stuff that he uh, didn't have in an autobiography. But I, I like this book and I like the idea of it. And I really had hoped, and I still do hope, that other authors and other specialists will do a similar kind of book on their heroes and really get to thinking about what are the things that happened to him or her? the turning points in in their lives that for better or worse move them forward so or push them backwards it, it there's there's any number of turning points for any number of people so if i had to choose one book to start with i would choose magic in a pair of horn rim glasses because it's newer it's more recent i wrote that in 2009 and again I took 12 years, 13 years off to be a mom and that was my that was my job being Matthew's mom. Now Matthew is 19 and he's on his own and I'm back to writing. So I'm enjoying it. <laughs>
1: Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. So many great lessons on screenwriting there. If you're looking for some more information, though, some more about the craft of writing for television, uh, we have a new chorus called Script Mastermind, where we have 21 of our proven experts telling you how to write for television, how to write a screenplay, how to break in, things like that. Uh, this includes shows of Gordon Levitt, Judd Apatow, also the writers of shows like Handmaid's Tale, on Mosquito Coast, Hunters, Solar Opposites, Resident Alien, WandoVision, the list goes on and on. Check that out. Uh, you can get this all right now for $1 at scriptmastermind.com slash television. That is the television screenwriting masterclass. It is at scriptmastermind.com slash television. We'll see you next time with a new episode.